0: Alright, so I guess I will start. Alright, so people have asked me about the test already, why it's not here and graded already, but... All right. Maybe Wednesday, but I doubt it. All right, I got two words, 85 and 80, right over the weekend, sunny and 80, so probably by next Friday. <laughs> by next Friday, absolutely by next Friday. Alright, so the first third of the course is basically over, if you can believe it, right? That's why all these tests are sort of happening now. So the first third of the course was sort of introduction, what makes a good antigen, information about an antibody, a lot about non-specific defense, right? We talked about uh, uh, complement, talked about the cells and all sort of things like that. So the first third of the course is just for a general sort of foundation, a framework, for what we need to talk about for the rest of the course. So for the next third of the course, from now until the next test or so, we're going to go back and look in more detail at acquired immunity, okay? So we're going to go back and specifically look at the establishment and the, and the construction of the antibody molecule, and we'll go into Right, how an antibody molecule becomes an antibody molecule and how that B cell is involved with the production of that antibody molecule. And then we're going to look at the other two major cornerstones of acquired immunity. We're going to start looking at and talking about those MHC molecules that we sort of alluded to, those major histocompatibility complex molecules. And then we're going to talk about the T cell receptor the other major antigen receptor on the surface of a lymphocyte. We have already talked and said that the antigen receptor on the surface of the B cell is that monomeric monomeric IgM molecule, that is the antigen receptor, and on the surface of the T cell, the antigen receptor is the T cell receptor. So we're going to look more at acquired or specific immunity, right? capable of recognition and elimination of foreign substances. And we said that that was going to be looking at and being able to react specifically to very specific epitopes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks until we take the next test. Okay? So in the beginning of the course, I said that the history of immunology is basically the history of medicine. And all immunology does is try to examine how the body cures itself, or how the body takes care of itself. Okay. To be able to get up to where we are today, we have to sort of go into the Wayback Machine and look at how we got to where we were, right? So we're going to look at, basically, the history of medicine today in preparation for talking about how we're going to be able to study and come to the point to realize that the antibody molecule is the major molecule of acquired immunity. So if you sort of go back in time, and how far back in time are we got, I don't know, we're going back 5,000 years maybe, we're going, you know, so we're going to do this whole sort of from 5,000 years ago to now, right, we're going to go through this 7,000 years in about half an hour or so. so hang on. So. When you look at the history of medicine, when you look at the history of immunology, right? we got all sorts of early theories of where diseases come from and what the immune system really is. So you can sort of group people's sort of recognition and trying to talk about what's going on with disease for thousands of years into three major categories. right? So we're basically going to cover a couple of thousand years with three sentences. So the first one was a theory that dealt with expulsion. Right? So in this theory, we're born with a bad substance, it grows inside, and it leaves the body. Right? That, that would sort of make sense. Right? You got to think about you know, people way back in the day, and way back in the day is a couple of thousand <laughs> years ago. right? So, they're trying to explain why some people are dying unexpectedly. Some people are getting this, you know, this, this raise in temperature or this rise in temperature as they're laying on their, I don't know, their, their hay bed or whatever they're laying on. right? <laughs> So they're born with a bad substance. So there's something inside. Right? They have no idea about any sort of microorganism. Right? We'll talk about that when we get into the 1800s. So they have no idea what's going on. Right? They're not knowing, you know, that they're breathing stuff in. They're being attacked by pathogens. So there's something inside. It grows. If that person lives, then whatever that substance was, it has left the body. And if that person dies, well, then that substance was able to defeat the body. So we're still still sort of amorphic out here. We go from expulsion theories to depletion theories. In depletion theory, there's something in our body that's required for whatever this agent is, for whatever this thing is that's growing inside us. And once whatever this agent is that's inside us and growing from something in our body, once it uses all that up, I don't know, all that psychic energy, whatever it is, You're going to be okay because then there's nothing left for that agent to grow with because it used it all up. You're okay. If, on the other hand, you died, well, then this agent had enough of the stuff and it was able to defeat you at that point in time. We're now moving into, right, an agrarian society. We're learning how to take corn and grow corn. So yeah, so now we have the innate seed theory. Right? We now know that if we take corn and plant it in the ground, we're going to get more corn. If we take wheat and plant it in the ground, we're going to get more wheat. So. Right? We're born with whatever these seeds are, these seeds of every single disease that's going to take place. Because by now, we're noticing different symptoms. We're not calling them symptoms yet. We're calling different sort of reactions. Some people are getting fevers. Some people are getting coughs and colds. Some people are getting, you know, sort of pustules all over their body. So we have all these different sort of seeds from every disease that we're able to see in certain individuals who are getting these diseases, so these seeds are inside our body, the seeds are eventually gonna grow, and when they grow and that seed eventually dies because we're gonna live, right, we can't get that disease anymore because we don't have that seed anymore. If, on the other hand, the person gets the disease and they get this certain sign, I'll call it a sign rather than a symptom, if they get this certain sign and then they die, well, you know, then that seed was able to defeat the body. But, right, at least this sort of gets to the point of, right, we have whatever this seed was, and now we're getting to the point of we're not going to be able to get that disease anymore. So we're protected from that disease from now on. Clearly, they're thinking because this seed isn't there anymore. Right. So you can sort of see that at least they're getting to the point of We're not going to be able to get it anymore. We're protected from that disease for the long haul anymore. So now we start getting into the 1800s or so and we get into the area of the germ theory. And germs come from Latin for German or to sprout and that we have these things that are germs and that they are present. We still use the word germ today. Right? You're going to go home later on, you're going to turn on the television, and every third or fourth commercial is going to be, use our product to get rid of germs. You know, Don't do this, get rid of germs. Right? We're still using germs as this sort of generic term, this very broad, very unspecific term for things that can hurt us. And that's basically where it comes, right? So German word for, from sprout, so we're back to the innate theory, we're back to this disease just sort of coming out of nowhere, right? So we have germs and germs are still with us today. Germs as a description of pathogens and, and infectious diseases. The other thing we know about these, about these germs is that they're able to reproduce. Right? We've finally gotten to the point now where we're going to be able to identify whatever these germs are. Right? And this was done by Pasteur's experiments. Right, So Louis Pasteur is the first one. Right? Everybody sort of knows about Louis Pasteur. You have a, you know, he was some sort of famous guy back in the day. He's got a whole institute named after him. Right? He got a Nobel Prize. That's how important his things were. But what was it that Pasteur did? The first thing that Pasteur really did was he got rid of the idea of spontaneous generation. Right? If you can't see something, and then something appears where it wasn't there anymore, you're thinking that whatever it was just came out of nowhere. Okay? And that's what he sort of did in this experiment. So in this experiment with his famous bottles, he did a lot of bottle experiments, he took some sterile broth, and again this broth is For lack of a better word, it's just like chicken broth, right? chicken bouillon. If you went home and you made some chicken noodle soup and you took all the noodles and all the chicken out of the soup and the broth that was left over, right, that would be a pretty good media for growing bacteria. So he takes sterile broth and he puts it into two vessels. He puts one into a sealed vessel and then he seals it up and he puts another one into another vessel that doesn't have the top off and what he finds is that in the vessel that is open at the top, it gets contaminated, right? and by contaminated, things start to grow in it, it gets, a little bit, uh, it gets a little bit cloudy, so things are clearly growing in it. But in the sterile bottle, with the sealed top, nothing grows. So something's coming from the outside world that is right, depositing itself inside the bottle and then it's growing inside the bottle. So he goes on to do a different experiment. So now now his experiment is, all right. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my bottle here, and now I'm going to put a little crook in that bottle. I'm going to put a little bend in the bottle. I'm going to take my sterile flask, I'm going to put sterile broth into it, but now if something falls in, it's not going to make it all the way around. So if something falls in, then it's going to be able to grow in here. So he does this experiment, leaves the flask out, right? couple of days in his laboratory, nothing grows. So he's thinking, right, so now he's, now he's shown, all right, whatever this was isn't coming from spontaneous generation, and absolutely, whatever's growing in there, right, from this original experiment, it just sort of fell into the flask and it started to grow. Right, so what's he going to do? So now he needs to do some controls. Right, He's got to be able to show that what he's seeing is true. So he comes over here, he breaks off this part, and now he's going to allow air to be able to flow right inside, boom, he sees some growth. Further, he's a pretty good scientist, so now he says, oh well, maybe when I cut this I did something, I, you know, I didn't do it the right way, and blah, so now what he does is he takes his chamber here, he tips it a little bit, and he starts to wet whatever is in down here. So he's got the same exact chamber that didn't grow before. He takes it, he turns it, he wet, gets it wet. Whatever was in here, trapped inside here, you know, sort of comes around, goes back inside, and now it starts to grow. Now we're really onto something here. Now we're showing that there's something in the air that's able to sort of grow in here. Something is growing that we never saw before. Remember, I mean, you know, maybe we got a microscope, maybe microscopes are just starting to come online. But this is the first sort of experiment to show, right, that we have things in the air that we can't see that are capable of growing in all this media and all these things we're doing bunch of more people, a bunch of more investigators are out there in the early 1800s or so. And now we're going to find that specific germs are responsible for diseases. And these are Koch's postulates. Koch is is a famous German microbiologist. Although, well, yeah, by now he's a microbiologist, right? Micro, small biology. So they're trying, they're showing that these things are starting to take place specific germs, right, because they're using Pasteur's experiments and they're, now they're starting to grow things, they're starting to see these germs growing on plates or growing in broth. And Coke does a bunch of experiments to show that these germs are responsible for diseases themselves. So Coke has a bunch of rules that you need to follow or you need to show to show that a certain germ is responsible for a disease. And we still use these today, Koch's postulates, right? There's three rules that Koch comes up with. The first one is you have to isolate whatever this germ is from the sick and dying animal. An animal is dying right, or, or it is sick, you remove some blood, you remove some tissue. Clearly the agent must be inside that animal, right, because now we know about these agents. So we don't have any seeds, we don't have anything inside. So you remove the agent from the dying animal, from the sick or dying animal. You grow this agent, in the laboratory, because now, right, because we're finding these specific germs and we're finding that we're able to grow these things. So you grow them inside the laboratory and then, You have to take that germ that you're growing, inject it into a virgin animal, and show that that virgin animal is going to get the same disease that you observed previously. And if you can do that, then you're showing this specific germ is responsible for a specific disease. Okay? So, Pasteur is going to go on and do a whole bunch more experiments so that by, you know, closer to the 1900s now, all throughout the 1800s, Pasteur is the first one to use an attenuated strain, right, and an attenuated strain is a strain that is capable of, or is not capable of causing a certain disease anymore, right. So he's going he's gonna to move forward with Koch's postulates. So what he does is he takes the germ itself that he's growing in his laboratory. And he does something to the germ to make it so it's not going to be able to cause the disease anymore. So what he does is he just dries it out. He just takes his plates, he lets his plates just dry out, so he uses some dried out organisms, and he finds that those attenuated strains, those dried out strains, aren't capable of causing a disease anymore. So that that sort of nails it right back home. I take half of my germs and I'm able to infect the rabbit, I do something to the other half where I'm basically going to cripple them and they're not going to be able to infect that rabbit. So he's the first one to do that. So he comes up with another depletion theory, right? We're we're chock full of depletion theories around here, right? So he says the germ now is going to use up what it needs inside the body and then the, the, the germ's basically going to die, and it's not going to be able to come back. Right? We just sort of tweaked it a little bit. We tweaked the depletion theory a little bit. So instead of saying that there's something inside us or there's a seed inside us or something, you know, we don't use it anymore because it uses up what we have. So now his idea is, well, we, we breathe in that germ. That germ grows inside our body, right, because they're growing all sorts They're growing everything on all sorts of different media. We're making different media now. We're finding all sorts of answers to all different sort of germs. Germs use up what it needs in the body. The person recovers from their illness and that person can't get sick anymore because that germ doesn't have what it needs to grow inside of us anymore. It's a reasonable theory based on the data that they had, right? Just think, you know, in a hundred years, someone's going to be teaching a course and everyone's going to laugh at what we were talking about these days, right? Until we get into our Star Trek sort of medicine, they'll be laughing at what we're talking about. So, this is 1800s, this is Pasteur. Around the same time, another famous sort of microbiologist from Germany, Emil von Behring, right? He still has a big drug company named after him, Beringer, Mannheim, I don't know who they've been bought out by, right, but they're still a big, giant drug company that was started in the in the early 1900s. So von Bering now, he's going to make a big step forward, right? He's going to be able to see that there's something inside the blood that neutralizes the germ toxin, right? So this is a big step. right? There's nothing inside right that the germ is using right there's something inside that we have that's capable of fighting and or destroying that germ and preventing that germ from giving us the that disease okay so the germ is releasing some sort of toxin right the germ is doing something to be able to cause the disease but we have something in our blood right so he calls it an antitoxin and that antitoxin is something in our blood that neutralizes the germs themselves. So then he thinks about it for a while. And he says, "Hmm, what if it's not a toxin? What if it's something else? If I call it an antitoxin, and it turns out to be something else, I'm not going to be famous for sort of discovering this stuff." So then he gives it this, this non-committal, this generic term. Okay, it's not an antitoxin, it's an antibody. <coughs> right there. Now you know why we call it an antibody, right? Because in 1890, some guy who's eventually going to win the Nobel Prize for this decides he wants to be famous, right? So we don't call them antitoxins anymore. We call them antibodies. So he does a pretty cool experiment as well. So what he does is he has, he has two rabbits. And he gives the rabbits, right, his germs that he has. And these rabbits get sick. So then he goes and he gets a different rabbit, a virgin rabbit that hasn't been exposed. He takes some blood from the rabbit that's sick at this point, transfers that blood, some of that blood into the other rabbit, and then gives the rabbit that germ. So that rabbit that's getting that germ should get sick, but it doesn't. Okay? So whatever this thing is that's in the blood, right. you can transfer it. You can transfer it from animal to animal if you remove that animal's blood. And we use this as a sort of a, as a, as a cure or, a, or, a, or as a, a therapeutic moiety for many, many, many decades when you used to have to take certain antibodies, right? If you were going to, to, uh, to visit places, you're going on vacation, maybe where there was cholera, maybe there was something else, right? You would have to go to the doctor's office and we didn't really have a pretty good vaccine against cholera or other sort of infectious diseases at that time. We would take some serum, right? You would make it in a horse they would take serum, so they would take cholera, inject it into a horse, a horse doesn't get cholera. So then you would take that horse antibody and you would inject it into the patient, and then that patient is going to go to a place where cholera might be endemic, or epidemic. Endemic would be the word, too. It might be epidemic, and that person isn't, is going to be protected from cholera. Because those horse antibodies are going to be able to bind to the cholera organism, Right now, clearly, yes, our body is going to be able to recognize those horse antibodies, and our body is going to be able to get rid of those horse antibodies after a while. But it's going to take a couple of weeks for that to happen. In the meantime, you're protected if you go someplace else. Right now, right, we can grow cholera, we can be protected from certain infectious diseases. But you know, only maybe 50 or 60 years ago, that's the way we could use vaccination. Right, we're going to be able to transfer immunity with serum antibodies from an animal that's in the middle of having that disease, right? So von Behring's is going to win the Nobel Prize for finding antibodies, right? So far we got a couple of Nobel Prizes right up there on the screen. So now we get to the point, now we need some theories, right? Now we need a way to explain what's going on with these antitoxins or these antibodies. So we come up with some more ideas. Right? Now, a lot of times in science, people have a whole bunch of ideas without having a whole lot of data. Yeah, sometimes that pisses certain scientists off, it happens a lot in immunology, Immunology, the history of immunology has a lot of certain theories without a whole bunch of data, but in all fairness, right? Certain physicists back in the, you know, a couple of decades ago came up with the idea, you know, there might be these things in the sky that we can't see that are destroying stars and sucking stars in. And, you know, we can't see them because they're so dense that light can't escape from them. Well, we know we have black holes these days because we have, right, the Hubble Space Telegraph and we have radio telescopes now. So sometimes it takes a while for technology to catch up. So, you know, we can sort of excuse some of these things as well. So, we need to b- explain antibody molecules now. So we've got a bunch of different theories. The first one is the direct template theory. And here, we're going to focus on the antigen for information, right? So the antigen is going to be able to direct antibody formation, right? Because clearly, the germ must be the most important thing because the germ is causing the disease. So we're going to react to the germ itself. So we're going to focus on the antigen. Okay, direct template theory, maybe not so bad. We have the adaptive enzyme theory. We're getting closer to modern times. They just, people had just discovered these new things called enzymes. Antigen maybe is going to be able to stimulate an enzyme there's some sort of modification, and now we have a new antibody molecule. This is the first theory that really talks about the importance of cells, right? because now we're starting to see that B cells are these things that are releasing antibody molecules, and it starts to focus on modification has some sort of effect on the genome we're going to be able to have this enzyme modification takes place and we're going to modify whatever this protein was we modify whatever this DNA stuff is and then we get a new antibody molecule all right so at least we're trying to to move forward and talk about what's taking place here so it wasn't until you know, the 1930s, 1940s or so, as we're getting more information, right? We're now finding antibody molecules. We're purifying antibody molecules. We're finding out about B cells. We're finding out about that B cells are the ones that are secreting antibody molecules. So we come up with a major theory called natural selection theory, and it's also called the instructional theory. And in the instructional theory, the antigen directs the immune system. Right? The specificity of the antibody is going to be determined by the antigen. So the antigen acts as a template to transfer uh, information to whatever this protein molecule, whatever this antibody molecule is. Right? So the specificity of the antibody is going to be determined. So the antigen serves as a template around which the antibody is going to be able to fold. So again, We're looking at the importance of the antigen itself. So when you think about the natural selection theory or the instructional theory, I like to think about silly putty. Do they still have silly putty out there in the real world? When I was a little kid, I loved silly putty. Silly putty to me was a marvel of of anything, right? The antigen serves as the template around which the antibody is going to be able to fold, right? So, in this case, the silly putty is the antibody, okay? Anybody, right, that sort of plays with silly putty. You can roll it up in a ball and it can bounce and, but what I used to like to do with it, right, if you sort of flatten it out and you push it up against the newspaper and then you sort of pull it off the newspaper, you would make a copy, right, of whatever was on there. So here, if the silly putty is the antibody molecule, whatever the antigen is, the silly putty is going to pick up the image of the antigen. Right? So you take the silly putty, and I don't know. The silly putty always came in this wacky sort of egg thing. I always got silly putty in Easter. Right? There was an Easter present. So you make one picture. right? you you sort of smash up the silly putty again. Right? That mixture become that picture now becomes part of the silly putty, I don't know. And now you can go over again, and now you can do it again, and now you can smear that silly putty up against maybe some words over here, and now that same piece of silly putty, right, before it made a copy of the car, now it's gonna make a copy of newsprint, I can fold it over again, I can make a copy of a comic strip, right? So however, that antigen, right, so here's the antigen, here's the antigen, and we have this same old piece of silly putty. Right? So we just keep coming up and coming up and copying and copying and getting information. We're getting all of our information from the antigen itself. Okay? As it turns out, right, later on in life, once we find out about pro- proteins and folding and genetics and DNA, eh, people sort of come to find that the instructional theory is not a theory that's going to hold any water. A couple of years later, about a decade later, natural selection theory is on its way out. People have done a lot of experiments with Silly Putty in the meantime, (laughs) and we come up with the clonal selection theory. And the clonal selection theory states that antibodies are natural products on lymphocyte surfaces that are going to be able to react with the antigens themselves. So I sort of already gave you the punchline, right, to the whole in clonal selection theory, because that's all we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks is clonal selection theory. right? We know now, right, that on the surface of the B cell, on the surface of the T cell, are these antigen receptors right? they are on the fight and they're gonna be able to react with any sort of antigen that comes inside. Each lymphocyte expresses a unique receptor A unique receptor specificity and this was the part that people couldn't wrap their hands around and it's going to be determined prior to the appearance of antigen. That was the really big turning point right here. That now we don't care about the antigen itself because we have this whole army of antibodies that are waiting to be able to see that antigen, or not to see that, to see an antigen, to see an epitope, to recognize that antigenic determinant right? before we even come into contact with it. So those B cells are pouring out of our bone marrow right now with all these different specificities, just waiting for the appearance of an antigen to, take, to, to come into the body, for that B cell to be able to recognize. Right? It's not like the antigen comes in and then we're going to send out a B cell to be able to recognize it. At any one point in time, right? of all those billions of B cells, and we talked about billions of B cells in the body, at any one point in time, right? They all have a specificity. Each antibody molecule on the surface of each individual B cell is unique, so that if we come into contact with a certain epitope, we're going to be able to respond to it. This was the part that people, you know, this was the part, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Show us some data, right? Show us how that's going to be able to take place. Show us how, right? that specificity is going to be determined prior to the appearance of an antigen. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next two lectures, right? When we come back on Wednesday and Friday, that's what we're going to be talking about, right? The proof that came to that. Furthermore, clonal selection says that binding of antigen to the receptor is going to activate the cell to be able to proliferate. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. We put some B cells into a, into a tissue culture flask. We add some antigen. We count the number of B cells that have been generated. Right? We have all the B cells that we need. We saw a stimulation of those B cells are going to be able to take place. Right? So right? we know this is clonal selection theory. We have a, a whole series of mature B cells. And one, two, three, four, right? This this is going to go all the way down, right? To those billions and billions of B cells. So B cell number one, B cell number two, B cell three, B cell four, B cell 6,924, you know, B cell 8,324, right? So each one of them has this unique antigen receptor on the cell surface when a particular antigen comes into contact with a B cell antigen receptor on the surface, that that can recognize, then we get proliferation, right, clonal selection. This individual clone, this individual cell has been selected. It starts to proliferate and it's going to basically start secreting large amounts of antibody molecules. So this is what we know today. This is how we know that it works today. So it doesn't matter what antigen comes in comes in to the body itself what pathogen comes into the body itself there should be a b cell with a unique specificity right just this random specificity that should be able to recognize it clonal selection theory would even suggest that if a life form lands on the planet Right? from someplace else, an extraterrestrial life form, lands on the planet, as long as it's made out of protein, right? as long as it's a carbon-based organism, there might be silicon-based organisms, if you like old Star Trek episodes, but if there's a carbon-based life form right, that's made up of proteins and amino acids, and there's, a, there's some sort of you know, evidence to suggest that that may be true, Right? We can see amino acids on meteors. Right? So there are amino acids out there in the galaxy and in the universe. And if those amino acids are going to come into the same way and make proteins, we would be protected. Right? I would argue that we would be protected. Because our antibodies, our antigen receptors, will be able to recognize those unique three-dimensional shapes of those epitopes of those protein molecules. Okay? Anybody ever read War of the Worlds? The Tom Cruise movie was horrible. I didn't like it at all. Right? What happens at the end of War of the Worlds? The Martians get a cold. Right? The last line of the book is, says something to the effect of, I know the lowliest of creatures on God's Earth protected mankind. Right? Those Martians, well, you know, whatever, right, clearly they weren't harvesting people for blood or getting energy for whatever Tom Cruise thought they were doing, but, right, they came down, they wanted to take over the planet, they caught a cold, and they died from a cold, right, they died from being infected by some sort of lowly bacteria or, you know, the most lowliest of of life forms on the planet, protected man. The Martians didn't have the ability to recognize that protein antigen and they died. We, on the other hand, if Martians visit us, as long as they're made out of carbon and they have proteins and amino acids and they sneeze, (laughs) we should be protected from whatever they're sneezing out, okay? Because our antibody molecules are going to be able to recognize those epitopes, those amino acids in those proteins that they have on their surface, right? Right here, each lymphocyte expresses a unique receptor determined prior to the appearance of antigen. Right? I promise, by a week from today, you will be convinced that that's going to be able to take place, okay? But we still have a problem we still have this variability that we have to be able to deal with. How is this variability going to take place? We know that we have all these different myelomas, right? We talked about this. We had a whole bunch of B-cell tumors where we had individual antibody molecules and we sequenced all those antibody molecules. And that's how we knew about the variable regions. That's how we knew about the constant regions. Right? So those myelomas were developed that made specific antibodies. We studied all those proteins. We isolated those proteins. So again, right, we're in the 1940s, 1950s or so, and we're getting all that information. We're seeing these variable regions. We're seeing these constant regions. We're seeing all the differences that are going to be able to take place. Right. Now we need some theories to explain the variability of the antibody molecules, right? So the, so, the, so the naysayers to that theory said, tell us, oh mighty ones, how are we going to get that variability, right? We need to explain the fact that we've sequenced all of this information from all these different protein molecules and we've seen all this information coming from all these different places, so tell us how is the clonal selection theory going to overcome that obstacle. Right? Here's a whole bunch of variable regions, here's a whole bunch of constant regions, but they're all part of the same protein. How are we going to do that? Well, first one is, we got the germline theory. And in the germline theory, the genome is going to contain all possible immunoglobulin variants. Well, we soon came to know that that's not true. Right, because we found this new stuff called DNA, and we're finding this thing. Right, the two bases have got to come together, and yeah, there's something encoded in this DNA that's going to be able to make protein molecules themselves. But we have billions and billions of B cells. That means we have to encode billions and billions of different protein molecules. And you know what, fellas? We got a lot of DNA, but we don't got that much DNA. Right. So clearly the germline theory isn't going to be able to hold muster, right? Germline theory came, germline theory went as soon as, right, Watson and Crick start talking about DNA. Absolutely. We don't have enough we don't have enough room on the DNA to get your several billion DNA molecules, uh, DNA uh, antibody molecules. All right? So all right, so we'll come up with what a different right a variation of that the somatic variation theory. There's a small number of immunoglobulin genes, from which a large number of specificities can be generated. Okay, at least that sort of solves the whole DNA conundrum, right? Okay, well sure, we got a whole bunch of them. We're going to make a whole bunch of different ones, but tell us, right? Oh, great ones. How can the stability be maintained in the constant region when there's some sort of diversifying mechanism generating all these differences in the variable region? Right? Absolutely. Yeah, sure. You want to go with that one? Fine. You still haven't convinced me, you still haven't told me how we're going to be able to do that. Right? We've got to get back to work. So we've got to start thinking about this thing. So it's 1965. Dwyer and Bennett come up with a hypothesis, right? People come up with hypothesis, Dwyer and Bennett come up with a hypothesis, right? Two separate genes are going to encode a single immunoglobulin molecule. We're going to have one gene for the variable region and one gene for the constant region. Ooh, I don't know Dwyer and Bennett. I'm not too sure about that, right? Dwyer and Bennett did not make a lot of friends when they came up with this idea. Because now the idea is, right, everybody knows it in this room, one gene, one protein. Even though we got a whole bunch of different, we got these things called introns, we got these things called exons, eh, but we splice them all out, we put all the introns next to each other, but one gene equals one protein. There's no way that two separate genes are going to encode for a single immunoglobulin molecule you know, Mr. Dwyer and Bennett, the two genes must somehow come together at the DNA level. Oh, is that all? Is that all that has to take place? And how is that going to happen? Tell us how that's going to take place. Dwyer and Bennett says, hey, look, it's a hypothesis. You know, we're just just throwing stuff up on the wall, see what's going to stick. If this is going to be true, then there have got to be thousands of V genes and a couple of constant region genes, right? We know that there's only five classes of immunoglobulin molecules, so we only need a a, a mu, a gamma, a delta, an alpha, and an epsilon gene to make the heavy chain, right? But still, we need thousands and thousands of V genes, right, to be able to go on that other part, right? Because now we're going to say somehow we got to bring them together, right? we got to bring them all together here come up with a combinatorial model, right? We're going to use a little bit of germline and a little bit of somatic variation theory, right? This is going to give us to show some sort of diversity in the V region and some sort of consistency in the C region, right? But again, people were like, fellas, fellas, you know, Watson and Crick just won a Nobel Prize, and they told us that one gene equals one polypeptide. I'm not, I'm not buying it. You may be selling it, but I ain't buying it. Right? Two genes equal one polypeptide? Right? Show us the proof. Right? Show us the money. You know, where's the, where's the idea? So, it takes a while. It takes about ten years or so. Sometimes it takes time for, right, the, for technology to catch up with the human mind. We've got to come up, we have to build the machines. We've got to come up with the ideas. took a whole lot of time in between when one science fiction writer said, you know what? We're going to get to the moon one day. And somebody said, what are you, nuts? Yeah, you're going to the moon. I'll send you to the moon. How are we able to get to the moon? The same guy said, one day we're going to have ships that will sail underwater and cruise the oceans underwater. <laughs> and everyone said, I don't know what H.G. Wells' first name was. They said, H.G. Wells, what are you, crazy? How are we going to be able to you know, bring ships underwater and and, and, send it the, and send it through the ocean? It took a while for technology to catch up to it. Right? It's going to take a while. So it takes ten years or so for technology to catch up. So Tonegawa, right, Tonegawa was working at MIT right across the river, Tonegawa was going to get a Nobel Prize. Because right, he's going to come up with the answer. So what does he know? By this time, we know that we have a whole bunch of molecular biology tools are out there and around, right? So he has a whole bunch of cDNA probes, right, for that secreting myeloma. Right? We've, we've, we've invented molecular biology. We know we have messenger RNA. We know we have cDNA. We're able to use it. We're able to do a whole bunch of different things. And he's going to probe, right, messenger RNA of both the variable region and the constant region, right, because we know we got that on the protein, so it must be encoded in the message somehow, and he's going to use the three prime end, right, of that same messenger because that's going to encode the constant region, right. So he's got the whole constant and variable region, and now he's going to have just a piece of the constant region, right. So he's going to use this, these probes and he's going to cut up his DNA and he's going to run his DNA on a gel and when he finally does this and he runs it on his gel, right? that's what he comes up with. So again, this doesn't matter, it's the, certain, the amount and this doesn't matter, it's how he does it. What he does come up to find is that there's a couple of C's and a whole bunch of V's. Right? When he does his experiments and he shows these things, right? That small number of constant region genes, right? And many, many more variable genes, and he finally confirms the Dwyer and Bennett hypothesis. So Dwyer and Bennett are very happy. They're going back to cocktail parties, you know, they're not, they're not doing ha-ha, we told you, right? So Tonegawa has confirmed this. Right? Couple of C's, a whole bunch of V's. What he hasn't shown is, okay, thank you, Tonegawa. You showed us a bunch of Cs. You showed us a whole lot of more Vs. What's, how does it work? You still haven't told us how it works, right? How do the C's and V's, how do, how do you get this C and this V to come together to make one polypeptide? Right? We're still not buying this whole two genes equals one polypeptide thing. You showed us some C's, you showed us some V's, what do we need to do to bring this all together? And what they found, Oh. <laughs> we'll have to wait until Wednesday to find out. They're eventually going to do that. All right, enjoy your weekend. Again, it's going to be 85. Don't let it go to waste.